Father God, thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity to come together to study your word. We bless you, Lord, for this time. We bless you for Rabbi Ari and ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to hearing his thoughts on the book of Numbers as we start this journey. Amen. Amen. I want to say one other thing about the tour that we're getting ready for. First of all, Palo Alto and Israel have pretty much the same weather. So if you know what it's like here in February, March, it's about the same in Israel. It can be very hot or it can be weird. But in any case, there are two things about it. And the, as the wildflowers come back to the hills of California, they're coming out in Israel as well. When you go on a summer tour, you don't ever see them because these are the ones that will be all over just sprouting up. But the other thing that you don't know, and it fits actually into numbers, is that Israel is the great migration route for birds in the world. Birds going between Africa, Asia, and Europe go through Israel. Some of them take the big jump across the Mediterranean, but the rest of them rather fly with something more solid and occasionally more liquid under their feet. And so we're going to be going to the biggest bird sanctuary in the world. And it's right next to the Mount of the Beatitudes where uh, uh, Danielle and I are going to be doing... uh, Beatitudes in Hebrew, I'll be doing that in English, from that mountain. So it'll be a different experience uh, for, for those of you who've never seen it like that before. Anyway, I want to talk, this, this last week, last yesterday actually, was the end of the Jewish reading of the book of Numbers on an annual level. And this is the week you're beginning, so it was kind of fun for me to put that together with the end of one cycle and the beginning of another. Um, the fact that it's taking you about a year per book. <laughs> you know the Jewish uh, blessing, you should live to 120 so you can finish the doggone book. <laughs> but in any case, um, I want to tell you a little bit about numbers. And one of the things that Danielle was telling me about was that her opinion is that the people that she talks to in Christian context, by and large, look at the book of Numbers as an unrelenting census. And there are three sensi, sensi, if you, you know, sensusis, whatever. There are three countings up of all the people, men, 20 years and up, unless you're a Levite, and then it's from a month up. But I'm not going to get into that. There's a lot of counting, and that's why they call it the book of Numbers in English and in Greek, but not in Hebrew. And Hebrew is called in the wilderness. Because it starts off that we're in the wilderness of Sinai. I want to tell you a little bit about wilderness. I'm going to tell you two little wilderness stories after this first one. How many of you saw or read Lord of the Rings? Okay, so I'm not talking to people who have no idea of what I'm talking about. Basically, if you watch any kind of movie or read any kind of book that gets a bunch of people together on a big quest, the first part of the book is all getting them together. And then the next thing that happens is it gets scattered to the winds. And everything goes to hell in a house basket from there. And they get depressed and they get confused and they fight among each other as to who should be telling them where they should be going and why and who's in charge and what are your qualifications. And that's what the book of Numbers is. The beginning of the book is counting all the Israelites because they're going to go walking in as an army to conquer Canaan, but they don't do it. That's one of the other things that happens in the book. They don't do it. So they got all this marching and counting and put them into divisions and 
everything, and then they don't go. And when they don't go, they realize they're not going to get there. At least nobody who's an adult is going to get there. And so at that point, they just begin to complain and rebel and go this way and that way and the other way. And I'd always known that there were a lot of revolutions, rebellions. What I realize now is that it's impossible to count them. Not because there are so many, but it depends on how you classify them. And you'll see this, and Danielle can send you if you want something to keep you up awake at night that you can't understand. No, if you, that, that's, <laughs> I like to make lists in the Bible and see what I'm talking about, and when I do, I find things that I have no idea were there. But anyway, so here is the first thing about the book of Numbers. It's everybody going right out there and then falling apart. One of the things about Judaism is we don't have any saints. Now, you might think, wait, you know, what about all those people that you've heard of who are great people in the Bible? And the answer is they're not saints. They all have feet of clay, to coin a phrase from Daniel. There aren't any saints. There are a couple of people called Sadiq in Jewish history, but not in the Bible. Nobody's a saint. Everybody's got some challenge. Everybody's got something to overcome. Everybody's got some major flaw. I'm not going to go listing them. You can think of them yourself. But there they are. They're out in the wilderness. And even Moses and Aaron and Miriam fight with each other. And even Moses and Aaron and Miriam have to die in the wilderness. And so that just goes to show you that this is where it's not just a book of numbers counting things up. It's also a book where everybody, every single person associated with traveling through the wilderness messes up and is condemned to die there including Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. There is nobody gets out of this alive. And that's the big difference. We have to learn from a flawed people who struggle to do good. Our Bible is not a Bible of unqualified successes. Our Bible is a lot of people like me who get angry once in a while more than I should, yell at people who I shouldn't, lose hope. I'm a little more vulgar than I should be once in upon a time. In any case, when I read the Bible, I see my friends, I see my family. And so what happened to me when I was in Israel for the first time in rabbinical school is our teachers took us on tours of the land. They wanted us to learn what the country was and where everything happened. And that was really amazing. I mean, when, you, when you're a congregational rabbi in America, you just wish you could take all the kids over there for a day. Okay, now we're going to study what happened on Mount Carmel. <laughs> Ain't that great, kids? Look at, oh, there he is. Uh, uh, looks like Elijah is still here. Hi. hi. You, know, I, you wish you could do that, but you can't do that. But when I got there, I went to every significant place, and I felt... Nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
I, I went to this place, it was important. I went to that place, it was magnificent. I went to this place, it was historical. I went to this place, it was upliftingly, modernly political. And I went to all the beautiful, historical, meaningful places, and they left me cold. And it's not because I didn't feel any connection to God. I was praying out the wazoo. I was having an amazing time there. But, but everything left me cold because I was supposed to feel that big thing there, and I'm just a contrarian, and it take me to a place where I'm supposed to feel something, and I won't feel nothing. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> and one day, I was walking in a back lot in Jerusalem, literally a back lot. might have been a parking lot. I don't even know. It was nothing. I was just going from one place to the next. I'd been there, I guess, half a year, and I said, my ancestors walked here. Right here. I don't know which one of them. I don't know what they were doing here. But all of a sudden, I felt some connection in a way that I couldn't feel it before because I couldn't feel it at big, important places. So I'm not kind of a big, important guy. I'm just a person, and I feel more in tune with other people than I do with big, important places and big, important people. But then there is a word, wilderness, that I want to teach you about and what I felt when I finally understood it. Now, we start with Hebrew when we interpret things. And so the word that we interpret is bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. But midbar does not mean desert. It doesn't mean wilderness. It just is used for that. What it means is to talk. Midaber means to talk. And so, and, 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 to, and, and, and the word davar, which can mean either a word or a thing, or both. Is it a particle? Is it a wave? Is it a word? Is it a thing? Yes. And so, what is a midbar? That it should be a wilderness. First thing is, it's, there are two things that M can do in Hebrew. Okay, now you're going to get it. You're going to have to get your doggone Hebrew grammar lesson. There it comes right now. Two things an M can be. One is a thing that says place. So when you have kadosh, which means holy, a mikdash is a holy place, a sanctuary. Just put that M in front of it. It makes it into a place. So a midbar could mean a place where you hear things speak. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And you can finally hear things because there's not so much competing with your attention. And I'll tell you about that in a second. But the other word can mean, can stem from another meaning of the word M in front of a word, which means from. It's a prefix, which means from. From davar, from thing, away from things. So that Midbar can mean both a place where you hear speaking more easily because it's a place which is away from things. There's not so much there. It's a whole lot emptier. Doesn't belong to anybody. So in 1971 Passover, 
my first year in Israel, I was given a rifle because I was the only one in my rabbinical class of 67 guys who could fire one. Don't ask me why. And anyway, the rifle was a year older than I was. The state of Israel is a year older than I am. And this was used, this rifle, in the War of Independence. The rifle was older than me. It weighed a lot. <laughs> and I got two bullets. I felt like Barney Fife. You know, you got to put the bullets in your pocket. And the idea was you walk around with it so that if there are desert dwellers out there, they won't steal your stuff while you're sleeping. So, so I made the... I was in charge of setting the, um, the guard because I was the only one that had ever fired a rifle. And I did, and I gave myself the middle-of-the-night shift, because that's what good people do, is they give themselves the worst stuff. So I did that, and there I was in the middle. And it was after Passover, a couple weeks after Passover, which meant, because Passover starts on a full moon, like all Jewish festivals do, it was a no moon, a new moon. And I was standing guard by the Suez Canal. There was an army there. That's nice. I mean, but I was just over here with a couple buses, and I was standing guard. And I looked, and the sky, without any moon, was just stars. The entire vault of the sky was, was stars. There are about 8,000 stars that are visible to the naked eye. I'm an amateur astronomer, so I know I belabor you with that fact. So even though you can think they were an infinite number, there were only 8,000 I could see and even that. And they went down and they went down and they went down and they went underground. They didn't go underground. They went all the way down to the Suez Canal where the phosphorescent plankton took over from them. And so all I saw were stars and stars. And I was all by myself. 3.30 in the morning. Nothing but stars and plankton. In the wilderness. And I did not expect that. I had no idea that that beauty was there. And I felt a little like I was being cradled in a bed with a blanket of stars. Now, I didn't get a major revelation that night. You don't have to. But that was the first night that I began to hear the world talk in a way that I never knew that it could. And that's what happens in Midbar, in a wilderness. You hear the world talk. But it doesn't mean you're getting the right story. Just because the world's talking, the world's talking all the time. People do the wrong thing all the time, too. And so what happens in this wilderness? Well, people begin to make their own ideas as what they hear. Now, I want to show you where the books of the Torah go. If you, something you may not have ever noticed, but if you take the last line of every book of the Torah, it takes a trip. And the last line of our Bible which is Second Chronicles, is go back up. And where are you supposed to go back up to? The last line of the Torah, which is Israel. But it starts, and Joseph is dead, and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. 
That's where Judaism starts. At the end of the book of Genesis, it's all in stasis in a coffin in Egypt. We're as good as dead, folks, until the Exodus. And where do we go? On our journeys. doesn't say where we are. We're just on our journeys at the end of Exodus. At the end of Leviticus, we're at Mount Sinai. And it says, these are the mitzvot commandments, which God commanded Moses for Israel's heirs, children. And if you see, it's the same thing at the very end of the next book. These are the mitzvot, the commandments, and the judgments which God commanded by the hand of through Moses to Israel's heirs. Same thing, well, a couple extra words. On the steps of Moab by the Jordan near Jericho. And that's where the book of Numbers ends. And then Deuteronomy ends in the sight of all Israel, the place, as well as the people. But what happens in the wilderness? I, these numbers on the far left is which it is. I started counting from the bottom. See, one, two, three, four, five. But it's, it, because I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere important, and I didn't want to leave those numbers. So forget about those numbers. There are about 21 things that I found here they're fighting about. Some of them get resolved amicably. In the beginning, Sotah is straying for marriage. Those are laws. It's not really a rebellion. But that's what happens, and that's what it's about. Nazir is the modern word for a monk. But it doesn't mean a monk in biblical days. It means somebody who just needed to be so away from the world that they withdrew in a, in a shell of holiness. Tavera, verse chapter 11. That's the first one where the people get burned up. You know what happens at the end? The burning snakes in the Hushtan. There's a lot of, starts here, then it ends there. There's a lot of framing of this, that, and the other. The burning snakes is a very small story. And Nehushtan is the name of the Nachash Nehoshet, the bronze serpent. Nachash is not serpent. Nehoshet is bronze. Nachash Nehoshet, it's rhymes. And then it's called later on Nehushtan, combining bronze and serpent. And they had to burn it because people had begun to worship it as an idol. Hezekiah's days. But anyway, going back here, Taveras, where things start. And then there are two basic fights. The first one is, uh, are we there yet? <laughs> Can we get something besides bagels? <laughs> you know, that, that's basically what's going on. But in order to do that, we find that there's something not happening. The elders are not helping Moses. You know, one person can't carry a community alone. As wonderful as Danielle and Kevin are, there's a band up here that was not Kevin or Danielle. There are people setting up over there who are neither Kevin nor Danielle. There are people with the kids who are neither Kevin nor Danielle. There's an excellent coffee maker who's neither Kevin nor Danielle. All these things make a difference. It can't just be you. And Moses says, look, you know, they won't listen to me anymore. So God says, okay. I'll let you share a little of your prophecy with the elders. And, okay. And from then on, they start helping Moses. And they make a big difference in what he's able to get across. And it's Moses and the elders. Well, after they fight about that, Miriam and Aaron, oh, come on back. There you go. Miriam and Aaron rebel against Moses. He's called the most humble. I like to put it in there because, you know, 
he wrote it and he should know. So, <laughs> and they, they rebel over his prophetic supremacy. Doesn't God talk to us too, they say? Little brother. And he married a Cushite wife. Cushite is the word for Ethiopian. And so there are some conversations that it's a black woman that they're, com- they're complaining about. So what happens? Miriam turns white. You want a white woman? You got a white woman. You're the white woman. <laughs> You're going to stay that way for a while. Think about it. And then Aaron, who says, I can pray just as, talk to God just as well as you do, God's not listening. God has to talk, Moses, Aaron has to talk to Moses to talk to God to heal Miriam. So they both get a little comeuppance. But, you know, first the prophecy has to be shared and the brother and the sister, and they're all messing up. This is before the scouts decide that they can't get the land. This is a mess already. Who, everybody's fighting on who's, who's in charge. So the next thing's in green because that's over the leadership of the priesthood and the people. The temporal, that is like the king leader, and the high priest. And that's all solved in a minute because you find that the scared scouts cause all of Israel to tour around and stray. And at the end, in verse chapter 15, it says, don't stray. The reason we wear talit is because it says when you see that fringe, then your mind won't go scouting around for other things to do wrong. So it takes it to the word scouting the land, and they come back and they tell the wrong story. People said they can't go. They said, you're going to live there 40 years in the wilderness. You're going to drop. Your kids will get there. So that's all tied together with tzitzit, literally. And then you have Miriam dies, Moshe and Aharon are judged at the well. By the way, it's not because they struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. It's because when they struck the rock, what they said to the people was, are we going to bring you water out of this rock here, folks? Ah, it was God that's going to bring it out. We're just the MCs. I'm sorry. We got it wrong. But anyway, that was the reason that they didn't sanctify God, and that's exactly what God said, and that's why they both have to die. Then you get some more. <laughs> you get some more. I'm not going to talk about Baal Peor because Baal Peor in Hebrew means Lord of Squat. <laughs> and it's sexual idolatry. And I'll explain to you later if you're over 40. Anyway, um, (laughs) but after that, after that, after everything goes crazy and people have been killed and plagued and all kinds of stuff, you find that everything else at the end of the book of Numbers is resolved correctly. That is, they really can't move on until they get it right. So they get it wrong in pretty much every possible way they can until they finally learn how to get it right. Now, if you don't recognize some of those names, um, one of the other things that Danielle and I are going to do to all the Jewish and Christian members of our tour, which would be most of everybody, is to really throw you for a loop by using David Stern's complete Jewish Bible. 
You say, what's wrong with that? And the answer is because he doesn't translate names, he transliterates them from the Hebrew. And then he puts the way you're used to them in English in a parenthesis. So, you'll, so all the Christians will find two things that are crazy. Number one, all the names are in Hebrew. Number two, the books of the quote-unquote Old Testament, which is not the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew Bible, are in Hebrew Bible order. And then you'll find out how confusing it is to do an American crossword puzzle. <laughs> when they say BK after E-S-T-H. I have no idea what the book after Esther is in, a new, in an Old Testament. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, but I, I fake it. Anyway, so... Uh, I'm going to get two or three letters in there. I can get the rest of the name. But that's one of the ways. And the way the Jews will be thrown by this book is that the complete Jewish Bible by David Stern also includes a Brit Hadashah, New Testament. So we're going to make everybody feel totally uncomfortable <laughs> until you finally get a hang of it and you find it's not a bad book. It's a good translation, and it's a modern translation. I just want to say one more thing about the book of Numbers as you go through it. What can you look for? What can you hope for in terms of guidance for a Christian life? Now, it's really one of the things that you should know about me is I've spent a lot of time in interfaith learning since I was in, a, in an interfaith apprenticeship seminary 42 years ago. When I show you that Joseph died, and they put him in a coffin in Egypt, and he was dead, and they brought his bones with them in a coffin to the land of Israel where they reburied them. There's one member on this trip who's already dead. And so one of the things that you might be thinking about is, is that a symbol? Is that a precursor for a man who dies and is resurrected. Now, Joseph is never resurrected in that kind of a way. But what's the story? Would be, what would the story be if Jesus were in that box that they were carrying with them? Because even if he's not in our story, he's in yours. How can you not see him when you see him everywhere else? Really? Right? I'm not putting down Christians. You, you feel it. I know. I, one of the things that I love Danielle and Kevin for is they, they live it. You know, you've probably seen it. I see it all the time. They live it. Sometimes to their detriment. <laughs> but they do. And they see it all the time. I assume you do too. How would you feel knowing that the steps you were taking through the wilderness had another purpose. Not just to get the entire people to a land where they can actually come in and take root. But they're bringing an idea of a holy life with them. And now, does that book have anything more to say to you? And every time somebody decides to go the wrong direction... And you know that's preventing you from getting there. Now how do you feel? It's not just... You see, when we went down to Egypt, we Jews, there were 70 of us. When we came back, we passed a place where there were 70 palm trees. 
And it's to say, because 70 is a symbol for all the people in the world at the time of Noah, that the whole world went into terrible chaos and oppression into Egypt. And the whole world came out with us on one level. Because we had to bring the world the Torah, the story, the values, the knowledge of God, the way to make a world worth living in. So when you come step by step through every doggone number and every other total of Shimonites and all the other things that you're going to wade your way through, just remember, they had to teach you how to add and subtract before they could teach you how to think. So let that be the beginning of the book. But let these... Let these fights... Why did all these things happen? Why so many? Why is that so important to put it in our Bible? Yours too. Why is it there? Why do you have a story of people screwing up royally? Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, including Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Why is that there? That is the question to ask yourself as you trot along. Steps one, two, three, four, keep counting. Uh, All the way through the book of Numbers. So I hope you unpack it well. I hope I've stirred a little more interest than there was before. And when you get to the part where they're making tzitzit, the little fringes, wonder how that ties it all together since it's in the middle. I wish you well. Have a good travel through the book of Numbers. Do you mind if we let them ask you a couple questions? Nope. Okay, so you guys all go to the coolest church ever because seriously, who gets to have a rabbi come and introduce the book of Numbers for the community? All right. And uh, Rabbi Chaim, you're up next. So, you know, <laughs> Ari set the bar high for you. Um, Ari, uh, we want to give you guys an opportunity. We have a few extra minutes to ask Rabbi Ari any questions that you would like to ask him. Um, probably about anything. I mean, he doesn't, he's not obligated to answer. So you can to, ask him Be sure to put it in the form of a question. Yes, that's right. Any questions about anything Ari shared or anything that you would like to ask? You have a rabbi before you that you can ask questions of. Who's, who's accustomed to crazy questions from people? Because he worked for how many years at Hillel at Stanford? As, the Hillel, as, a, as a Stanford rabbi, yeah, 20, 21 years. So college students ask a lot of ridiculous questions. So. Sometimes better than the ones here. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and one of the unity things about Jews, Jews and Christians have in common, we both groan equally well at the book of Numbers. And uh, really, no, because, you know, by and large, I, I've taught the Torah 40 times. And actually, Numbers is a welcome relief because the building of the tabernacle begins in chapter 25 of Exodus. And from that point on, with a small exception of the golden calf, you've got unmitigated purity, 
gold, silver, boards, more purity, <laughs> leprosy, things coming out of your nose, coming out of everything. But you know what I mean? It's just, it's just a very difficult section. And when you finally get to Numbers 11, and all that board and gold and stuff is done, then you get stories. So the Jews wake up right there. Um, we do it a little, like I said, piece of the week. But most of the time, people don't know the intricacies of the stories. They know two of the big ones. They know the one where the people didn't get a chance to go into the land. And the, 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 the command to wander for 40 years. And they know the, the story of Korah, the great revolt against Moses and Aaron. Um, and those are, those are two prominent Torah portions in the summer, and people know them. Lots of people have bar mitzvahs on them because those are two of the more interesting Torah portions with lots of story in the summer when it's not a school night and parents can come from New Jersey. But anyway, so, so people know those two Torah portions a little bit. They know the basic themes, but that's pretty much about it. Yes? <laughs> well, first of all, I think we have two different religions that handle that slightly differently. Um, but the, to, to Jews, anybody, anybody who did good things in this world more than they did bad makes it to heaven. There's no religious litmus test. It has nothing to do with what God you do or don't believe in. It only matters how you treat God's creation. Um, so, yes, they were redeemed to the extent that we feel that. Um, I would have to let you take the other point of view. Well, I, I think actually this comes into something we were talking about this past week uh -huh. when we were studying Per Vote. We were talking about in the book of Exodus that at the very beginning of that book, and we talked about this when we studied Exodus here, uh, that the people are crying out, but they're actually not crying out to the Lord. The text just says they're just crying out as a result of the oppression and the slavery. God hears their cry and remembers and then acts, right? And he delivers them. And he brings them up out of Egypt and then through, I mean, just miracle after miracle and through the Red Sea, Sea of Reeds, and he brings them all the way to Sinai. And it's only after he has rescued and redeemed that then he invites the people to respond to that redemption. So the idea in Christianity that sometimes has been communicated quite a bit that it is all sort of merit and works as to whether or not you can earn God's favor or earn God's redemption, the narrative of the Torah actually speaks distinctly opposite of that. That God rescues and redeems and then invites us to respond to that redemption. You don't say your marriage vows before you've met your mate. So you don't have to commit to fidelity and better for worse and everything else when you haven't met your mate yet. That is what you do out of a response to having met the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. And the same is true for Israel and God. That God rescues and redeems Israel, woos them, and all the prophets, many of the prophets use that language. Remember when we were in the desert, how like a bride... Uh, Jeremiah says in the, in the desert, we sort of had our honeymoon there, that all this time God is bringing Israel close to him and then marriage language used at Sinai. So that concept of redemption um, 
is a broader one. And, and then we also, ha- as Christians, have another broad definition of redemption that we talk about once we get to Brit Hadashah or the New Testament. But the wilderness is that um, speaking place, and this is where God can speak to his people, and then the people can respond. Yeah, Yeah, and, and throughout this situation, um, sorry. Situation, that's a great word for that. Yeah, well, God, stuck in the wilderness. God well, keeps complaining to <laughs> God keeps complaining to Moses that they're they're rejecting God. Right. So that in this case, and, and this, I'm trying to find which one it is, and I forgot which one it is. Anyway, one of the plagues. Oh yeah, the plague that Aaron is at. Um, so Aaron incenses the wall to stop the plague. It's called a a, ket, a ketzef, and ketzef is the word for whipped cream. It's foam. It's the words for God getting angry or God's nostrils flare, God froths at the mouth, these are all very anthropomorphic types of phrases. But then they have um, very real consequences in, in, the, in the human world. So in some respects, you can understand that. But in any way, they, these are some of the, the troubling words in the Bible, and they're not just in, um, in numbers. Did somebody else have a hand up? Right over here. Yeah. Can you go more into how Joseph going from Israel to Egypt and back to Israel with everyone, uh, the redemption of people? Well, when Joseph was about to die at the end of Genesis, he told his brothers to make sure that, he said, we're going to get out of here, and when we do, take my bones up with you. And it says that Moses made sure to take the bones of Joseph with uh, them and at the end of Exodus 12 when they're leaving. And so they do, and there are a whole lot more stories about it. And then when they get to the land, they bury Joseph uh, in, in the land of Ephraim, which is with the tribe that, you know. Within Israel. Within yeah. Israel, yeah. And it's near where Joshua will ultimately be buried because they're from the same tribe. So, um, uh, actually, yeah. So, uh, when Joseph comes back, it is, in our view, full circle. He did go down to Egypt, but then he came back even after he was dead. And there are other occasions like that, like Ezekiel, when he's in Babylon and he has the vision of the valley of the dead bones, dry bones. It's a matter, we actually have a line from that in the Israel's national anthem. Because in there they say, Avda Tikvatenu, our hope is lost. And in the national anthem of Israel it says, Odlo Avda Tikvatenu, our hope is not yet lost. And so bringing that back, bringing Joseph back, is one way to say, it doesn't matter if there's none of you left. I can start you the way I started you the first time. So I have a different view. Once you deal with concepts of infinity and eternity, because, see, I don't think the world's going to end ever. And so when you deal with infinity and eternity, I don't look upon people of goodwill being people, just some kind of sentient being, and it can start all over again, and they will probably think of themselves as same stories in some respects. That's what infinity adds to eternity. It can happen again, and it has happened again 
and it will always keep happening again. So, I'd also just add to that that in the ancient worldview, dying in exile or being cast out in exile was one of the worst things that could ever happen to you. So being cast out from your family home, um, having to go into exile, like the, the struggle that uh, Naomi has to manage when she's leaving Bethlehem and having to go over to Moab in order just, I mean, like that would have been the hardest decision ever to leave your homeland. You would do it because it was your only option left. Uh, there's a technical term used in the Bible called, and he was gathered unto his fathers. That means that when that person was buried and their bones were there in the grave, that they were, those bones were gathered to the ancestral grave into the, and, and you can actually see it in archeology span and we can get all wonky when you come to Israel and I can show you how they built um, and we'll take waves. a volunteer to gather you right, to your... Right, that's right. Um, so the, the importance, the deep importance for Joseph to know that they were going down into exile, right? And they're doing it because there's famine in the land and he's going to be saving the people of Israel, but that they're going to be there. And God had already told Abraham for 400 years, right? There will be an enslavement. It's going to be brutal and horrible and terrible, right? So they're expecting all this, but to know in his bones that he will be brought back out and gathered unto his people. This is of deep importance from an individual perspective as a familial perspective, patriarchal, patrilocal, patrilineal perspective, as well as a national perspective, right? That God cares deeply for the people of Israel and he will bring them into the land that has been promised to Abraham. I should say just two things, but... Let Danielle explain it later. First of all, no, no, no. First of all, when Joseph was brought back, if you take, take the story of the Torah for, uh, for, for the truth, then he had no relatives there. They all died in Egypt. Right. So he went back and wasn't gathered to anything. But in case, the other thing is that Abraham, who left his father's house and all of his relatives, when he died in Hebron, he was gathered to his father's. So there's a spiritual gathering that's right. more right. possible, that's also possible than the actual physical gathering in any one location. And that's a good thing because, you know, one of the things that we have in common is that most of you move from somewhere. And so the old country, it could be North Carolina, it could be New Jersey, um, you know, that, that's where you'd have to go back to be gathered all together. And the fact is that that's not what happens. We, right. Haim and I spend a lot of our time dealing with people who've had a funeral back in the old country, but come out here to mourn with their new family mm -hmm. so they can be comforted by the people they seek out on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. So you, yes, Tony. I'm going to give you a strange example, but I saw it this morning at the movie theater. They're coming out with a remake of Ben-Hur. Just what we all needed. But <laughs> in any case, the, the thing about it is, why do you need a remake of Ben-Hur? Because anybody over 20 hasn't got a clue who Charlton Heston was. Right? And so you do this because 
nobody who is finite like we are can have any sense of eternity. We can think about things that last long, you know, like an infernal gobstopper or something, but we, don't, we, we have no idea of eternity. You can't even, I can't even, imagine a vacuum. You know, you think of a, a vacuum tube. Well, it's not the vacuum we're seeing, it's the tube. We can't conceive of a vacuum. We can't conceive of something which is everywhere all the time forever, and we can't conceive of something which is nothing ever. So that's why people, all people, no matter what religion we are, cannot envision God in any way. God's utterness, you know, the things we were singing this morning. No, it was this afternoon, but still we were singing them, and lose my time in eternity. But... The thing is that you cannot know. We cannot know. Whenever I see a volcano or whenever I see a picture of the San Andreas Fault, and this is a pretty minor planet, I can't conceive of the amount of energy it would take to lift a mountain, to blow up a mountain. I have no idea. And so nothing of the scale of God in time or in space can be understood by anybody as finite as we are and never will. Which I'll just say is that's exactly why we need the Midbar because it's a land without boundary. So when you sit in the wilderness, it's in every direction forever And it's without boundary, and it's in those spaces where we're sort of sitting in awe, and we sit on the edge of the Maktesh, for those of you who've been in the wilderness in Israel, and we sit under those skies, and we realize how finite we are, and how God, and how God speaks is boundless and for eternity. And one thing about a February-March sky that's different than an August and June-July sky is it's not as hazy. It's clear. And you can see the sky in Israel the way you can't see it in the summer. And we'll have an astronomer with us there pointing it all out. So all of that to say, thank you, Rabbi Ari, again, everyone. Thanks so much.